0: The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus the Liberating King and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Have you ever had an experience with someone that that experience crystallized for you, like everything about that person that you had been trying to figure out, like maybe there are people in your life that they do some things and they say some things that you're really not sure about And it's only later, maybe after you've known them for a good while that it all becomes really clear. So I had this roommate in college and he was very different from the rest of us who lived in these two houses. Like for one, he was super concerned about his grades and the rest of us weren't. But he was a really high strung and really focused on cleanliness and those sorts of things and just college guys High strung and cleanliness, those just aren't at the top of our list of things to be concerned about. And we'd never really understood him. And then it got around to the day that we were all graduating and everybody's parents came to town. And his mom came over to the house to have lunch with everyone. And she walked in and within five minutes, everything that we didn't understand before made total sense. Like there are couples that I um, perform their wedding ceremony for them. And so for most of them, there's this test that we use and I visit with them like four times just talking about their own expectations of marriage and what some of the unique beauties and challenges of their marriage, especially given their family of origin, what all of that means. And every now and then there's a couple that there's one of them that there's something I really don't get, I really don't understand, and I can see that the fiance really doesn't get or really understand, and then we get to the rehearsal where all of the family's there, and now I understand, like you understand everybody so much clearer when you get a bigger picture, of who they are and who their family is. And one of the things that's true about you, what's true about me, and everybody that you've ever met, everybody that you will ever meet, is that you don't know anybody until you know their story. That what we usually share with one another is kind of the press release that our PR department sends out. And it's usually about the good stuff about us. Every now and then we'll share some, something negative or something hurtful, but it's kind of like filling out a profile on some website someplace where you don't think the truth about you is really gonna get anybody to swipe left or swipe right or whatever it is that they do. So you just kind of give them the particulars. But what happens is that you live life kind of letting your PR department lead and no one really knows you, and you don't really know anyone else? Because to know someone requires that you know their story, and that they know your story? And so today is the second Sunday of Advent. And Advent is the beginning of the Christian year. And it's where for thousands of years, followers of Jesus have rededicated their lives to following Jesus and started again. And the way that we start again by doing that is hearing the story of Jesus, celebrating the coming of Jesus into the world. Actually, the word Advent means coming. And one of the weird circumstances of our contemporary moment in the world is that there are incredibly More and more people who in the public sphere are talking about Jesus and using the name of Jesus who don't seem to actually know Jesus. And they know some facts about Jesus. Like they can tell you about the birth usually and about the death. And anything that happens in between the birth and death, they're not all of that fired up about. They're not all that interested in. They just need Jesus to die so that when they die, they don't um, go to hell for eternity. It's what Dallas Willard called. Dallas Willard called those people vampire Christians who want Jesus for his blood and nothing else. (laughs) But what you miss is that if you don't know the story of Jesus, then you actually risk missing Jesus. Why does he say what he says, teach what he teaches? Why does Jesus spend time with the people he spends time with? Why does Jesus say there are some things that are more important than other things, even when those are all good things? Why does Jesus think that some things are weightier than other things. And so I thought, since this is Advent, that it might be helpful to spend some time hearing the story of Jesus. So when you open up your New Testament, the first book you get to is Matthew. And Matthew, like several gospel writers, Begins by telling this story that we celebrate this time of year. It's the coming of Jesus into the world. But Matthew does it in what seems like to the naked eye would be the most boring way possible. Matthew doesn't do it the way that you or I would do it. Like if a friend pulled you aside and they said, Hey, could you tell me a little bit about the birth of Jesus? You would probably say something that sounds like the nativity set at your home looks like. It would have shepherds. It would have a stable. It would have angels and wise men and a baby in a hay. But that's not how Matthew tells a story. Matthew starts his story with just a list of names, a genealogy, like Matthew, I guess Matthew figured that he was going to be the original 23andMe and and take you all the way back with a list of names. And I would bet for most of us, when we have read our New Testament, when we have read the Gospels, we look at Matthew 1, we open it up, and we just see all of those names, and we say… I should just skip this and get to the good stuff. But here's how Matthew starts. He says, this is the family history, the genealogy of Jesus, the anointed, the coming king. You will see in this history that Jesus is descended from King David and that he is also descended from Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and Judah's brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Perez. Perez and Zerah. And Perez and Zerah's mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Amminadab was the father of Nathan. Nation was the father of Sam. And was the father of Boaz. And Boaz's mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed. His mother was Ruth, a Moabite woman who converted to the Hebrew faith. Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David. David was the king of the nation of Israel. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, and she was married to a man named Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram. Joram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of... I went to school for this, people. You shouldn't be shocked. This is what $100,000 in education looks like right here. <laughs> Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Amon, Amon was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. And Josiah's family lived at the time when God's chosen people of Israel were deported from the promised land to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah had a son. Shiathiel. Shiathiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abuud. Abuud was the father of Elekime. Elekime was the father of Azar. Azar was the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Akim. Akim was the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Methan. Methan was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, who married a woman named Mary. It was Mary who gave birth to Jesus, and it is Jesus who is the Savior the anointed one. Wasn't that riveting? (laughs) Hey, if you practiced, you could do it. (laughs) Who starts a story this way? Just with a list of names, names that are hard to pronounce sometimes And surely there are some names as you're reading Matthew 1 that jump out of the page to you. You recognize those names, people like Solomon and Jacob, Rehoboam, maybe even in Boaz. But if you're living in the ancient world, this is really important, especially if you were a Jew. Because if you were a Jew, one of the things that you wanted to prove to everybody else is that you really were a Jew. And so you had to show this unbroken line all the way back to Abraham. And if you wanted to be a priest, you had to show an unbroken line all the way back to Aaron, Moses' brother. And if you wanted to have a claim to the throne, if you wanted to say that you were royalty, you needed to show an unbroken line all the way back to David. And one of the things that Matthew's trying to say is that Jesus is king long before Kanye got around to it. But Matthew does some weird stuff. Matthew does something that no one else would have done in the ancient world. Matthew lists five women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, who was married to Uriah, and Mary. And the reason no one would have done that is if you wanted to establish credibility, you wouldn't list the name of women. Women couldn't testify in court. Women couldn't own property. As a matter of fact, in the ancient world, if you were a woman, for most of your life, you are either the property of your father and then later the property of your husband. In one of the ancient forms of Jewish prayer, Jewish men would pray to God and they would thank God, thank God that they were not born a Gentile, a slave or a woman. But Matthew lists five women, five women in the line of Jesus who all had children under very suspicious circumstances. And the first that Matthew mentions is a woman named Tamar. And Tamar's story, as you can find in Genesis 38, actually doesn't begin with Tamar. It begins with her father-in-law, a man named Judah. Judah leaves his home and he goes off to a foreign land and he finds a woman there, a foreign woman there, and the two of them marry and they have their first son, a son named Ur. And then, after a few years, she gives birth to a second son, Onan, and then several years later, a third son. And so, when Ur gets to be about marrying age, Judah goes on a trip, and he finds Tamar, and he marries Tamar to his oldest son, Ur. And Genesis says that Ur was particularly, especially wicked. And so he dies. Well then, Judah decides, okay, Tamar. You will marry my second son, Onan, and he will give you a child. But Onan doesn't want to go through on the deal. And I want to be clear about this, but I want to be careful about this. Onan isn't disinterested in being married to Tamar. He's disinterested in fathering children with Tamar. And he is using her but not delivering on what this arrangement is supposed to be. And so, Onan dies. And Judah says, okay, Tamar, here's what we're gonna do. Um, My last son, he's too young to get married. So keep on your widow's clothes go back to your father's house and when he's old enough, you can get married. But time just keeps ticking and ticking and ticking and ticking and and the years keep passing and Judah's not come through on the deal. And in between that time, Judah suffers a loss himself, his wife dies and after his period of mourning, he and his business manager go on a little trip to a town called Timnah. Well, Tamar hears about this trip, so what she decides to do is to take off all of her widow's clothes, put on different clothes, and a veil. And when she gets to Timna, she meets Judah, and Judah thinks, because she's wearing this veil, that she's a prostitute. And Judah decides, hey, um, how about you and I go do prostitute stuff together? And Tamar says, what do I get? Judah says, a goat, which apparently was the going rate. And Tamar says, it doesn't look like you've got a goat with you. He says, I don't, but when I get back home, I'll send you a goat. Tamar's not down for that arrangement. She says, How about this? How about I keep your signet? This this little impression that was used for identification? How about I keep your signet and your staff, your walking staff? Judah says. Deal. And so they go do their stuff and Tamar goes back home. Judah goes back home. Then he sends his business associate, says, Hey, I need you to take this goat back where we just came from and give it to this woman that I owe it to. But when he gets to the city, he starts looking around and he can't find her. He goes to the elders of the city and he says, Um, I'm looking for the temple prostitute because I owe her this goat, which sounds like it would be a really fascinating conversation to overhear. (laughs) And they say, what are you talking about? We don't have a temple prostitute. We've never had a temple prostitute. And so he looks around the city and he can't find anyone. And so he takes his goat and he heads back home. He gets home and he tells Judah, he says, I went and I looked and I couldn't find her. Well, Judah figures, hey, I tried. I did my part. I did the best that I could. She's not there. What else can I do? I mean, it's not long after that, that Judah gets word to Judah, your daughter-in-law Tamar has been promiscuous. And the reason we know that she's been promiscuous is because she's pregnant. When Judah's not having that, so he sends his guys, he says, I want you to go and find Tamar, tell her that she has been unrighteous bring her out, and have her burned. And so they do, they load up, they travel to go find Tamar, they do, they say, you've been unrighteous, we're gonna have you burned. And Tamar says, not so fast. Because the man who made me pregnant these things belong to him. And they go home, tell Judah. And he says, Okay. Go find Tamar, bring her back here, and she will live with us forever. Because she has behaved more righteous. Than I. I love that story, and not just because that's one of the few stories that keeps junior high boys interested in the Bible. But <laughs> because in that story, you get so much of who Jesus is. That this woman, Tamar. She's related to Jesus, and it teaches us a lot. And I think one of the first things it teaches us is that when it comes to Jesus, the excluded are included. In antiquity, a woman had zero options. She gets married to her, and he dies. She marries his brother, and he dies, and she, her life, is put on hold by her father-in-law. She can't own property. She can't earn a living. Like women in the ancient world who ended up actually becoming prostitutes typically did that because that was the only avenue available to them. And she is a foreign woman married into this Jewish family who has had five, two husbands. And in that story, you hear the echoes of Jesus meeting a Samaritan woman at a well who is a foreign woman who has had five husbands. And while the world around them leveled all of the power and criticism and judgment, they were the victim. Could you imagine what it's like to lose multiple spouses? My grandmother buried three husbands. To be left alone in the world over and over and over. And Jesus meets this Samaritan woman at the well. And she comes to the well in the middle of the day because none of the other women are gonna talk to her because she's had five husbands. But that's not her fault. Maybe one of the reasons that Jesus is so open and so gracious is because Jesus knows what we don't care to know about other people, which is the rest of the story. That everyone's behavior makes sense in context. We also Learn the story that the vulnerable are protected. Tamar gets married and her husband dies. And then her father-in-law tries to marry her off to the second son in the family. And if you think that's a weird system, you should. Because I have a brother and if one of us died, Neither of our wives would be fired up about getting the other brother. (laughs) But this is the way in the ancient world that you had to protect the vulnerable. In Deuteronomy 25 explains it this way. It says, when two brothers are living together, sharing family property that hasn't been divided... If one of them dies leaving a widow without sons, his widow must not be married to a man outside the family. The brother should marry his sister-in-law and try to have children with her in his brother's name. Moses said her firstborn son will be named after the brother who died so that the first husband's name will not disappear from Israel and that son will will receive his share of the family inheritance. If a man doesn't want to marry his brother's widow she should go to the elders at the city gate and make a formal complaint. My husband died and his brother refuses to keep his name alive in Israel. He won't marry me and give give me children. The elders of the city will send for him and try to persuade him. He may resist and say, I don't wanna marry her. In that case, the widow will come to him with the elders looking on and pull one of his sandals off his foot spit in his face and say, if a man won't marry, make sure his brother's family line continues. He deserves this kind of disgrace for not continuing his brother's house. From then on throughout Israel, his family will be known as the house with the missing sandal and they'll all be disgraced. That's some serious ancient shade throwing right there. You don't want to be the house of the missing sandal. You don't want that cloud carrying you around with you everywhere. <laughs> and it's a strange world because we don't live in a world where what's called leverant marriage exists. But it was the only way in that world for property to stay in the family because women couldn't own property, and for a name to go on to carry forward. It was the only way for women to be provided for when they grew old was to have a son? What's Tamar supposed to do? Her father is not going to live forever. What will be her options then? she be destitute, live in poverty? She may actually have to take on prostitution as a living? Her life, her situation, after Ur, who was evil, and Onan, who disobeyed God, and Judah, who won't follow the law, she is at the mercy of evil men. And so it's no surprise that when you read, the stories of Jesus. When a group of men brings a woman to him who has been caught in adultery, Jesus knows a vulnerable woman suffering at the hands of evil men, of duplicitous men. And Jesus walks the earth. He's not just making stuff up. Jesus has vulnerable, rejected people in his family. And you've had this experience where you've been around a group of people and they're being very critical and they're being very judgy of somebody and I can't believe they did or she did and this happened to them and they chose this and you sit back in the corner and you go, I understand that totally. That happened to my aunt, my cousin, my sister, my brother. And maybe that's why Jesus says things like to treat everyone as family or why the Apostle Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn of a very large family, that when it's in your family you're much more understanding. You see what's happening. And you know there's always more to that story. And I think we also learn what good fathers give. Tamar marries Ur and he dies Then Onan and he dies. Judah has one son left. He's lost two sons. For most parents, most parents can't imagine anything worse than losing a child. And Judah has lost two. And he's pretty sure that he can spot a black widow when he sees one. So he sends Tamar back. She's not getting his last son. When Jesus comes, God wants to make sure that for all of the vulnerable and rejected people like me and you, he wants us to know that he is willing to give us his only son. Regardless of the consequences to him, that your life, my life will be redeemed and made whole because God freely chooses to give the only son. And in Tamar, we see the gospel story in one woman's story, that Jesus is the son who is freely given, even given over to death. And so Ecclesia, that's why this time of year at Advent, we invite you to participate in being people who give who fundamentally see this time of year not just as an opportunity to exchange gifts, but to give gifts. So in a few moments as we celebrate communion together, we'll have our baskets out for our Advent Conspiracy offering, which goes to drill clean water wells all around the globe. And it's part of what we do to be God's people on earth who give to the world as God has given to us because we have been redeemed through God's gift. And so, the invitation for you during this crazy, busy, expensive season of the year is to be the kind of person who is shaped by giving, the kind of giving that sent Jesus to the cross. And as Paul says, it was on the night that he was betrayed that Jesus took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body, broken for you. And in the same manner after the meal, he took the wine, pouring it, saying, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this wine, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes we are a people shaped by giving and may we always be people who give thank you for listening to our podcast if you would like more information please visit our website at www.ectasiahouston.org